Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Happy to introduce, we're going to have David Mack and Max Gladstone, so welcome tonight. We have a a mailing list. Uh, We send out infrequent emails uh, a couple times a month just to remind you of the readings. It's kgbfantasticfiction.org. And uh, I also want to mention another mailing list that uh, some of you may not have heard of. It's called uh, Gotham Lit. Who here has heard of Gotham Lit? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you. If you haven't, it's it's a Google group, and it's called Gotham Lit, one word. Uh, I have to... how, how would they sign up for that, Ellen? Right, let me tell you a little bit about the group first. Basically, it's an announcement for specfic readings in and around the New York City area. So it's, it's a cool list. It, it used to be on Yahoo Groups, but Yahoo's Groups is getting phased out. So we, they just switched to Google Groups. So it's definitely... Uh, if you get a message, maybe tell us how to join. Um, if you get a message, so I don't know. Yeah. Anyone know how we join the list? I don't even know how I joined the list. I did it so long ago. All right, I'll, I'll, uh, maybe I'll post something to Twitter if you follow me on Twitter. But anyway, uh, check it out, Google it, maybe it'll come up uh, like that. Uh, I know I'm being totally not helpful with that. Sorry. Um, yeah. Look it up. Uh, what else? Any other announcements? Well, I hope, hope everyone has a happy and healthy Thanksgiving and, and uh, upcoming holiday series, uh, season, I mean. I'm going to my sister's house. I'm making a pumpkin bread. I'm sure you all want to know that. Um, yeah, I could. What am I going to eat? I'll tell you later. I, don't, I have no idea. Um, the neighbor's dog, no. Uh, all right, next month, we hope you'll join us for Paul Tremblay and Nathan Ballingrid. Yeah. Uh, January 15th, 2020. Can you believe it's almost 2020? Insane. Uh, Cassandra Caw and Richard Cadry. February 19th, James Patrick Kelly and P. Deli Clark. March 18th, Robert Levy and Daniel Brown. April 15th, Clay McLeod Chapman. Uh, May 20th, Alana C. Meyer. Myers. June 17th, Kenneth Schneier. So, um... And we have uh, other people that we haven't announced yet. We're still waiting to hear back from. We have a few names that we have to fill up. But uh, yeah, we'll hope, we'll hope you will uh, join us in 2020. Uh, 2019, uh, it's not over yet, but it's been a really good year for the series. Um, we've had a lot of really nice guests and good crowds. So thank you for uh, supporting the series. Uh, so our, our first reader is David Mack. Um, David Mack is a New York Times best-selling author of over 30 novels of science fiction, fantasy, and adventure. His most recent works are The Midnight Front and The Iron Codex, parts one and two of his Dark Arts trilogy from Tor Books. 
he was actually showing me a, a cover of the of the third book. Are you gonna show yeah. that tonight? Yeah. So it's it's a very cool cover. Uh, he currently works as a creative consultant on two upcoming Star Trek television series. Here's David Mack. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, the two scenes I'll be reading for you tonight are from the third book of the Dark Arts series from Tor Books. That book is called The Shadow Commission. I just got preliminary art from Tor for the third book cover. Anybody who wants to get a closer look at this, catch up with me after the reading. I'll be happy to show it to you and show it off. I'm very happy with it. I think the Tor team has done a fantastic job. Uh, and Larry Rostant, the artist, has also done a great job with the art on these book covers. So the first scene I'm going to read to you is uh, featuring a character named Briette. And she is someone who was recruited from the enemy after the series' first book. And she is the head of the American Occult Defense Program. This scene takes place a day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. And because she was supposed to have protected him from these sorts of attacks, she is now being scapegoated and hunted by her own people. And like it or not, she is on the run. And that is where we find her as this scene opens. The hotel room was clean and tastefully furnished, but to Briette, it felt like a prison cell. She paced in front of the large window that faced Commerce Street in downtown Dallas. Morning sun poured in, hot and blinding, barely mitigated by the gauzy curtain she had left closed. It was almost 10 a.m. She had been holed up in this trap for hours. Using an alias and paying cash, she had checked in the day before, ordered room service for dinner and breakfast, cursed at the sloth of the service and its outrageous prices, and spent a restless night tossing and turning in between stolen moments of troubled sleep. That morning's weak and tepid shower had not improved her mood, nor had the long and ominous silence from Cade and Anya after the abrupt end of their conversation, which had disintegrated Briette's magic mirror and left her palm full of sparkling dust and freshly drawn blood. Something terrible had been set in motion, something too large for her to face alone. She had tried turning on the television to banish the crushing silence. Every channel had been packed that morning with news shows talking about the murder of President Kennedy. Hearing the details rehashed three times every hour had eroded what little remained of Briette's composure. The radio had offered a better distraction. She had set it to a station that played innocuous schmaltz, it wasn't her kind of music, but she couldn't find a radio broadcast in Dallas that played jazz, so she made do with what was available. Anxiety started to get the better of her. What if help never comes? What if I'm on my own now? There was a chilling notion, but one she had long feared was coming her way. During the night, she had sent her porter demon to fetch her a pistol and several boxes of ammunition, as well as a brick of cash. During one of her bouts of insomnia, she had left the room and gone just far enough to scout all the exits, including the hotel staff's service passages, the freight elevator, and which doors to the roof were unlocked. She had at least five exit strategies that didn't require the use of magic. 
someone who could shatter the shatter one of Kate's mirrors might be capable of anything. A soft knocking at her door. Something about that sound in that setting had always made Briette think of illicit encounters, a discreet summons to something tawdry, but not this time. Now it was cause for both hope and fear. Treading softly, she moved to the left of the door, put the muzzle of her Luger P08 semi-automatic pistol in front of the peephole, and used the sight to peer through the locked portal. If she didn't recognize the person on the other side, and he or she wasn't wearing a hotel uniform, Briette was going to put a bullet in her visitor's head. Her magical vision pierced the door and saw Cade standing outside. He was disheveled, bruised, and had the glum affect of a man who had not slept in far too long. Briette opened the door but kept her pistol ready, behind her hip, just in case. Where have you been? Reliving the fucking Alamo. Cade shoulder past her without an invitation. For once, his rudeness came as a relief to Briette. Had he tried to be nice to her, she might have considered him a threat. But an asshole? That was the entitled American man with whom she had been at odds for most of the last two decades. She shut the door and followed him. Nice of you to join me. He stopped in the middle of the room, looked around. Got anything to drink? Just tap water that smells like rust. Only the best at the Statler Hilton. He shook off his bomber jacket and draped it over the back of the chair in front of the room's small desk. I suppose you have a mini bar? I've been up all night yoking demons, and teleportation while sober is a major fucking drag. If this room had a mini bar, I'd have emptied it already. Don't try to match shitty fucking days with me, Red. His taunt made her tighten her grip on the Luger. You want to compare? I had a man's brain shot into my lap yesterday. A man I trained, murdered right in front of me. Cade turned and confronted Briette at point-blank range. I watched seven of my students get murdered last night, blown to fucking pieces by mercs with magic-piercing rounds. That's on top of the seven I lost before the massacre started. If it weren't for Anya, I'd be dead right now. And adding insult to injury, they blew up my fucking house. So you want to tell me again what a shitty fucking day you had? Briette shut her eyes and bowed her head, ceding the rhetorical point to Cade. She took a breath and purged herself of her selfish anger. Is Anya all right? She's fine. Cade backed up half a step and relaxed. She's heading to D.C. while Luis patches up the last of my apprentices. The mention of the former white magician jogged Briette's memory. I haven't seen Luis since the Battle of Chemia Island. How is he? Older, but he assures me he's also wiser, so no regrets. Well, that sounds like Luis. She set her luger on the desk. Shall we get to work? I didn't come all this way just for the barbecue. Cade leaned against the wall between the desk and the large window. By now, all the evidence from the shooting has been sent to the FBI's crime lab in D.C., Anya's on her way there to see what she can dig up. Briette nodded. That's a good start. Can you get a message to her? It's hard without the mirrors. But we can use astral messengers or flame scrying if we have to. What should I tell her? Focus her search on Oswald's rifle and the spent cartridges. If the people behind this haven't swapped them out yet, it might give us some clue as to who's behind the conspiracy. 
Cade arched a single eyebrow. Which conspiracy? The one that's hunting down the world's magicians or the one that killed the president? I'm pretty sure they're the same thing. Briette stepped toward the window. But that's only our first objective. Second, and equally important, is Oswald himself. And he's still in Dallas. She looked down at the street. Right down there, a block away, in the police headquarters on Commerce Street. Cade moved to Briette's side and looked out the window. The big building with the fancy columns? No, that's the municipal building on South Harwood. Police HQ is the glorified brick shithouse behind it. He nodded. Ah, okay, yeah, that looks more like a police station. He pulled a pack of lucky strikes from inside his jacket, lipped one free, and lit it with a snap of his fingers. After taking his first puff, he said in a gray plume, Call me crazy, but Oswald's got to be the most heavily guarded man in America right now. Why risk our asses trying to get to him? Because he fired magic-piercing rounds at Kennedy. Anything he can tell us about them. Who did he get them from? Who manufactured them? How many did he receive? Could be vital in tracking them to their source. Cade took a long drag. His features turned hard and mean as he exhaled. Gotta be honest. I'd like to have a word with the motherfucker who made those bullets. He threw a side eye at Briette. So how do we get in? I presume you have a plan. Walk in the front door. As long as you look the part, no one will stop you. Just me? What about you? The local hammers know my face. Dallas PD is almost certainly looking for me by now. I can't risk getting anywhere near Oswald. The weary carcist sighed. I knew I'd regret coming here. Well, that makes two of us. I need you to reach Oswald while he's in his cell on the fifth floor and find out everything he knows. Brietta praised Cade's attire and grooming with a disapproving look. But first, you need a shave and a shower, and then you'll need a new suit. Luckily for you, Neiman Marcus is only a block away. Cade frowned. Wait, you want me to cut off my beard? And they say vanity is a woman's sin. She put her luger into her purse, and then she pushed a $20 bill into Cade's hand. There's a barber in the hotel lobby. Get a shave and a haircut. I'll buy you a suit and meet you back here in 20 minutes. As she walked to the door, Cade pocketed the 20. Hey, get me a Xenia in a 42 regular, dark gray merino wool with a red silk tie and black Oxfords, not bros. Briette fixed him with a glare. You'll get what's on sale. <laughs> Scene. The, uh, the second bit, the second scene I'm going to read to you comes from later in the book. It features Cade as our point of view character. He and three of his apprentices, students, uh, Sathet, a woman from Laos, Yasmin, a Palestinian woman, and Barris, a Turkish man, uh, have attempted to pull a bizarre heist in a Swiss bank in Geneva. They've gotten both what they came for and more than they came for, but now their exit plan has been screwed up to the point where their only way out is to jump off the roof of the Lloyds Bank building into the Rhone. This is a five-story jump. Uh, it is not going to be easy, and in fact it turns out to be even less fun than they think it is. And that's where we join them as we open the scene. 
Cade's first warning there were police snipers on the adjacent rooftops was the bullet that pinged off the roof's peak a few inches from his head. He ducked and flinched by reflex. Stay down, he told his team. Crouching, he led them out of the gabled access door at the east end of the roof, near where it met an elevated wall separating it from the next building on the block. Yasmin was the last one out the door. As soon as she pushed it closed, the four carcists squatted beneath an overhang of the roof's peak. First, Cade told his adepts, the bad news. We can't use any teleportation magic up here. The good news? Now that we're outside, we can use other kinds of magic to get out of this in one piece. He pointed at Sapit. Do you have any illusion talents yoked? Just one. Uh, a kind of shimmer effect. It will look like I'm stuttering back and forth very fast, like I'm in a dozen places at once. Makes me very hard to hit. Okay, good. Can you use that on all of us at the same time? I don't know. I, I never tried. Well, you're about to. For all our sakes, good luck. Cade pivoted toward Yasmin. You need to protect the case. It'll make you less aerodynamic, so before you jump, hug the case to your chest. As you jump, conjure your shield, and in your mind, shape it into a wedge with its thin end about a meter beneath your feet. Release it as soon as your shield touches the water. She clutched the metallic briefcase to her bosom. Got it. Cade turned to give his last instruction to Barris. All we need to do is get enough of a running start to clear the key, okay? Once you're in the air, pinch your nose, point your toes, and drop like a spike. To the entire trio, he added, when you hit the water, let your arms rise and slow your descent. Then, swim for the bridge. Anya will meet us there and jaunt us out. He held up his hands and asked with uncharacteristic optimism, Everybody ready? <laughs> Barris looked as if he were about to shit himself. I can't do this. What part of it? Any of it. The jumping, the falling. I just... I can't. It took all of Cade's self-restraint not to throttle his impeccably dressed student. Barris, I'm going to give you ten seconds to explain yourself before I fucking throw you off this roof. The other man's expression shifted from anguished to guilt-ridden in a matter of seconds. I'm sorry, truly, but I'm afraid of heights. To be precise of falling from heights. <laughs> Cade pulled his hand over his face as if he could wipe away his glower. Fuck me. Are you kidding? Because if you are, confess now and I'll only break your fingers. I'm serious. Feel my palms. They are slick with sweat. My stomach is not so tight. Even Alexander's sword could not split it. I cannot make this jump. God damn it, Barris. Yes, you can. Because you fucking have to. We all do. If we don't jump, we get caught. If we get caught, we're as good as dead. Tears welled in Barris's eyes, and he started to tremble. I know that. I do. And I am so sorry, but my legs won't move. My body won't let me do this. Beads of sweat appeared on the man's forehead, and he wrapped his arms around his own torso. Barris, listen to my voice, buddy. You're going to be okay. To Sathet and Yasmin, Cade said, Grab his arms, hold him down. <laughs> From inside his jacket, Cade pulled out his emergency plan. It was a narrow syringe and a short hypodermic needle that he kept hidden inside an almost flat leather pouch. 
It had been prepped and loaded for a quick application. Too many times he had found himself in a tight spot with no way to smooth his own rough edges. In the last year or so, he had begun making sure he had at least one backup dose hidden on his person at all times. Before Barris could object at the grounds of his Muslim heritage or a general aversion to narcotics, Cade jabbed the needle into Barris's thigh and pressed the plunger. This isn't the best way to do this, but in a few seconds, you'll feel a fuck of a lot more mellow. Trust me. <laughs> he waited until Barris ceased tr- uh, struggling in the grips of Safed and Yasmin. When a wave of relaxation overtook the man, Cade nodded at the women. He's good. Let him go. Barris's eyelids drooped shut. Cade gently patted Barris's cheek with the back of his hand to wake him. Stay with me, buddy. We still have to get off the roof. Still don't want to jump. No, but now you might do it anyway, and that's half the battle. <laughs> to the women, he added, get him on his feet. Sathet and Yasmin took Barris by his arms and hoisted him up. Yasmin draped one of Barris's arms over Cade's shoulder, and from there, Cade carried his friend's weight. Good. When I give the signal, Sathet, cloak us in that shimmer of yours. Yasmin, keep the case close to your body. We'll run for the ledge, jump as hard as we can. Modulating his voice to a soothing tone, he reminded Barris, Bend your nose and point your toes. <laughs> That's rhymes, Barris said through a broad grin. <laughs> yes, it does. Pinch my toes and point my nose. Yeah. Close enough. Okay, everybody set. We go on three. One, two, wait! Barris exclaimed, eyes wide. He grabbed a fistful of Cade's shirt. I have a better plan! Never one to dismiss a good narcotic epiphany. Cade was all ears. What is it? You told the cops to bring us armored trucks. We wait for the trucks to arrive. Then we pile inside, and then we drive the trucks into the river. Cade waited to hear if there was more to the plan. (laughs) There wasn't. Then he laughed and patted Barris's chest. (laughs) That's a great plan, buddy. Except for one small problem. Standing straight until his friends pulled him back down to hide him from snipers, Barris projected offense and indignation. What problem? Cade had to tell him the truth. Just like I was bullshitting the cops when I asked for those trucks, they were bullshitting us when they said they would send them. There are no trucks, Barris. Never were. The cops are just buying time until they get a chance to shoot us. No trucks? Not one. Shit! I know, but great initiative, man. Way to think on your feet. Keep that up. He tightened his grip on Barris and steadied the man. Now then, ready to go? No. Too bad. Count of three. One, two, three. It all went like clockwork. They ran in unison, close together, but not so close as to do the snipers any favors. Sathet's magical shimmer turned the quartet into a fast-moving mirage as they darted over the sloped roof, picking up speed for their leap. As they lurched toward the precipice, Barris let off in a slurred shout, Paint my toes! Pick my nose! (laughs) And they jumped. (laughs) Scene. Thank you.
Anybody who'd like to get a closer look at that book cover, uh, come see me during the break or after Max's reading. Thank you very much. So sit back, have a drink. We'll be back in about 10 minutes. Hello, welcome back. Shh. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, where you get drinks and readings and companionship. <laughs> Sometimes noise, but we've been lucky in the last few months. Uh, I mean, noise from upstairs or outside. Anyway, I'm Ellen Datlow, and I am greeting our next reader, who is Max Gladstone. He's the author of Empress of Forever, the Hugo finalist craft sequence, and with Amal El Motar, This is How You Lose the Time War. In addition to his work with, short, sorry about that, that was a comma, um, in addition to his work with short and serial fiction, games, screenwriting, and comics. He's been a finalist for the Hugo, the John W. Campbell, the astound, oh, slash astounding, now. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how to pronounce it, Zizzy? Is that it? Who knows? Z uh, Zizzy. Yeah, XYZZY, mm -hmm. and the Lambda Award and was once thrown from a horse in Mongolia. Maybe he'll tell us about that at dinner. Anyway, please welcome Max. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm going to read from this glass of seltzer water. <laughs> tell the future. I don't know. There's probably some sort of seltzer mancy out there somewhere that we could talk about. I generally have pretty good relationships with horses, though, all things considered. Excellent. So I am going to read from a new book that I am working on. Right now, the tentative title is The Ice Machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually called Last Exit to Dead Country. And if all goes according to plan, it'll be out from tour early in 2021. This is just from the beginning. When the worst of the bleeding stopped, Zelda hitchhiked back to the Bronx to say that she was sorry. New York wasn't safe for her even then. She crept in sideways, kept her head down, and did not think about possibilities, about spin or black lightning or all the other ways the skyline might have looked. Those thoughts were dangerous here. But she had to tell Sal's mother she was gone. <laughs> if I was better at freestyling, this would be a fantastic opportunity. <laughs> Years ago, when she and Sal and the others left to begin their time on the road, she had dreamed that one day she might come back to this city to stride down her long boulevards as confetti rained from the rooftops and bands played marches. If they'd, no they'd known back then with the pride of youth that if they tried, they could fix what was broken in the world. It was a stretching early summer then, the glass-walled streets casting the blue of the sky back up and endless, so they'd felt as if they were marching off to storm the gates of heaven. They were saviors and adventurers. They believed. Zelda made her way back alone. The 138th Street subway station was a grungy straight tunnel tagged with graffiti and hard-to-reach places, a tired worn station best used for homecoming just like it had been when Sal first brought Zelda back to meet her mother, all smiles at her gawping cornpone girlfriend. Zelda was southern-born and rural before she came north for college, used to backcountry roads and towns with two stoplights. More people crouched on the few square miles of New York than lived in her whole half of the state. 
all those lies weaving around and through each other. And more to the point, those same crowded miles had given birth to the woman who took her by the hands and led her up. Now Zelda's hand was reaching out again, and she had no place to settle it but on the railing. She climbed the dirty stairs to a street that hadn't changed much, much since she had been what she then thought was young. Her mistakes climbed with her. Down in the tunnel, a girl cried, Hey, wait! Zelda almost did. She almost turned, and a nightmare voice suggested that if she had, she would have seen Sal. She climbed instead into the wet dog heat of an August afternoon. When she knocked on Ma Tempest's door, she heard the old woman wailing in the upstairs room. So she knew. A premonition, a dream, or even word traveling fast. Ramon might have called her or one of the others. Zelda knocked and kept knocking and no one came. She bruised her knuckles, broke the scratches and scabs on her fist, and left blood prints on the olive-painted door. In her chest, her heart was a giant, hairy, howling thing too large for the cage of her ribs. She had lost Sal. She had lost Ma's girl, her favorite and firstborn. She had gone off onto the road with her lover and their friends and ruined everything, her friends one by one and then Sal who went last. She wanted to kneel at Ma Tempest's feet to bow her head to those thick sandals and let herself be beaten until blood flowed from her back and the white bones lay bare. The bloodletting might relieve the pressure in her chest and maybe quiet the voice inside, repeating, It's your fault. She knew it was, leaving and everything that came after, and the fact that Sal was gone. And after all, to need of that, to need punishment or absolution from her mo lover's mother now was a crime greater than any she'd committed during those roadbound years, except, perhaps, for stepping out on the road in the first place. But she had nowhere else to go. So she stood there in front of the door, slumped against it, a woman in her mid-twenties sobbing bloody-knuckled on a door on a side, by a door on a sidewalk in the Bronx, the most natural fucking thing in the world. Dog walkers took no notice. The drug deal up the street went off without a hitch. Trucks rolled by on the Cross Bronx Expressway. A cop car cruised and blared its siren at her once, and she jumped, turned, glared back. They drove off sniggering. A cat sauntered out and sat across the street to watch. She kept knocking. This was the only thing that brought her across ten states, outpacing the shadows on her heels. After Montana, there'd been nothing left for her except this olive door. If she could just look Ma Tempest in the eye and say that she was sorry, that it was her fault, she could take the blow across her cheek, then she could go and find a cozy little hole to die in, or she could leave, walk out into the Hudson and never ever come back. There were pills she could take, or needles, and if all else fails, there was good old legal booze. She could rot her liver out and die jaundiced. That would be worth it. That would be right. She could picture so many horrible ends for herself without even sliding into an alt or an else. Just one conversation, four words, and she could go away forever. So she knocked and sobbed and felt the steel in her spine bend. The door took her weight. It opened and she stumbled, caught herself. A girl waited inside. Skin Sal's own deep brown, hair in puffballs, cheekbones that with another ten years' growth would mirror Sal's, and big dark eyes blinking behind glasses mended with masking tape and thick enough for Zelda to see herself in the reflection. Not a sister, a cousin Ma also had the raising of. She'd been called June when Zelda came to visit during college, and was barely crawling then. 
June stood straight, silent, still, with the uncanny consideration of a child watching an adult, which Zelda had never before this moment believed herself to be, losing her shit. But Zelda couldn't help but reach for her, for this girl who might have been her Sal long before it all went wrong. Just say it, she told herself. Just, just say she's gone or I'm sorry or anything with an ounce of blood in it and then you can leave. But before she could, June, she doesn't want to see you. Precise and clipped. And Zelda reached for her just to touch her arm or the black hand-me-down t-shirt and the door closed in her face and left her out there alone with the tears stinging her eyes and the snot running down her nose and blood on her knuckles where the scabs had opened and the sky uncaring and perfect blue solid as a dome overhead. She forced herself off the wall. All the despair that led her here lay on the other side of that door, lay on the other side of that apology, the other side of that door, untouchable as the past. She was drunk with rawness. And since she hadn't apologized, she could not now disappear to die. So she took her first step away. Every year after that, she came back. Every year she'd failed a little more. Every year she'd leaned down, gained a scar or two. Road dirt worked further into her skin. And every year the country grew a little darker. She'd been told back in college that she and her friends were going to save the world. She'd been told they would hold its reins and turn it toward truth and light. No one said it in quite those words. No one would be that awkward or gauche, but the intent was there. You, they'd said, are special. You will help the world. You will guide the country. And they'd been out in the world a decade now, or nearly those bright young things, the fuck-ups like Zelda and the ones who got it right, the polished and prepared debate team children, the masters of the college political union. They'd been out there in the world for almost 10 years, and somehow there was less truth each year than there was the year before, and the light seems to be dying. She'd seen it even in the years of hope. In the great cities of the coast, a sidelong wariness, glancing out the corner of the eye at something not quite there, a high pitch to the laugh of desperation, almost a scream, waiting on the world to tear. And in the heart, on the long open roads, the tension grew. Small town cops dressed in black now and sported rifles like the ones they might have used before they got kicked out of the military in one of the smaller stupid fucking wars. She got their sidelong glance, head to foot and back up, lingering along the way, a woman traveling alone, ratty and ragged, without a home address. Their fingers twitched when they looked at her. The diners and truck stops got hard, and they'd been no easy place before. America always quicker to call itself friendly than to make friends. The smiles when she found them seemed shallow and more fragile. She felt hated there in the jagged dark that sleeped seeped through the fault lines in those lips. Heat lightning flashed silent in the gathering air. And then the times changed. Say the world moved on. Say it had always been this bad, and she just never noticed it before. Facebookless, lacking mobile phone with no internet but the public library, she was left to feel out the moment herself. Those false smiles soured and became only the bearing of teeth. Cop cars slowed when they passed, the eyes behind the windows covered in dark glasses. 
But every year she came back and knocked on Ma Tempest's door until her knuckles bled, until June came down again and said, again, she doesn't want to see you. The Bronx changed. Coffee shops opened and the young rich, or at least the young not quite poor, filtered in. And June changed. The six-year-old stretched up and filled out, and enough of Sal's sharp angles rose from the flesh of her cheeks to catch Zelda's breath when the door opened. But the important details did not change at all. June's black eyes, the blood on the olive door, those words. How am I doing for time? Great. The tenth year after she'd lost Sal, Zelda was living in the backseat of a hard-used Subaru in a small town in Middle Tennessee, waiting for the end of the world. It might happen any day. She'd felt it gathering while she worked as a checkout clerk at the local Walmart and slept in the parking lot with the other losers and retired mobile home people. Heat and weight, the summer heavy as a guillotine in the time of change, and the faces on upturned tarot cards had led her here to solve a mystery, or else to wait to die, which would solve one mystery at least. A boy, 1819, black t-shirt with a homemade Thor's hammer tattoo on his wrist, always staring at his phone, wandered up and down the fishing aisle on alternate Tuesdays. She'd pass him sometimes as she restocked. And while she was around, he never, ever looked at the guns one aisle over. Sometimes he'd look at her, though, never quite brave enough to catch her eye. It might be him. Or Mona, her sometimes partner in the checkout line, her eyes deep-set and red, her shoulders down, her face bruised sometimes, or her wrist. She offered Zelda weed, and they smoked out on someone's back 40 under the stars, and Zelda coughed because it had been a while, and when she remembered just how long and who she'd been with, she began to weep and passed it off as more coughing. Mona wasn't from around here either, by which she meant she was from East Tennessee, Smoky Mountain country, not used to flatlands or the local flavor of dirty strip mall. When she worked her lighter, the sparks caught reflections of something in the depths of her eyes, which were large and close to Zelda in the dark. Mona's husband drank and stayed up late into the night typing on the internet and watching videos about how she was the root of all his problems. He'd been a good man, she said, when they met, and he still was, she said, only confused. Zelda said she didn't really care what was in people's hearts. You only had to watch their hands. Mona said that she had a secret place, a clearing in the woods out back of their small house, where she'd go when it got too much. She'd pretend that no one could find her there, and she'd sit, too drained for tears, and lean against the bark of one tree and talk into its cleft, tell the dark space inside her fears, and sometimes, she said, she thought it whispered back. It's possible, isn't it? So it might be her. It never was the certain ones. You had to be lost to let darkness in. You had to lie awake, turning and churning around a coal in your stomach, body aching but mind perfectly alert to the whispers through the door. You had to need something you couldn't imagine, need it more than life or sanity or love. You had to pray not to some airy aftermath god of smoke and cloud and resurrection, but to a gross belly-deep god of now, urgent and wriggling, a possibility that needed in. Most of the lurching redcaps with their scorn and their immigrant staffing, staffed contracting businesses couldn't muster that depth of need. But every once in a while, you'd find one who curled around a fishhook of what he thought or the TV said the world denied him or gave to someone else less deserving, and everyone else was less deserving. 
Those were the truly dangerous ones, the ones satisfied and convinced their shitty little lives were worth taking. That some great conspiracy of poor folks, black folks, women, and Jews were coming to steal their beer fridge when in fact most of those people were too busy drowning in debt in coastal cities to care. But those ones would tear the world on suspicion they weren't the most important beings inside it and they had before. So where would the end begin? Where would the rot break through? She never knew. She envied movie detectives the clarity of the case. In real life, you never know what your problem is unless someone loves you enough to tell you. This is always the one that gets personal. Philip Marlowe just had to drink and wait and not even hope sooner or later a beautiful blonde with legs long and bright and curved as the swell of swift water over rocks would slip through his door of all the doors in the world with a mission. Zelda would never be half so lucky with the mission or the blonde. She had to make her own road these days. But every morning she crossed the days off on the calendar she'd hung in the Subaru, one day closer to Sal's birthday, one day closer to her date with an olive door in the Bronx. One week left and crossing the country would eat most of that if she wanted to do it safely. She could not drive in straight lines anymore or use the interstates. Months of parking lot sleep and plastic checkout counter bags had drawn her no closer to the source of the apocalyptic weight in the air. She could give it up. She didn't have to sneak back a third of the way across the country and through the black hole orbit of Manhattan to stand on Sal's mother's doorstep and knock until she gave up for another year. This was her life now, had been for the better part of a decade, wandering alone, haunting back lots, shoring up the sandcastles of the country as they crumbled. Just give up what was gone. Take the L. She considered it drunk for the better part of an hour. Then she went hunting. It was harder to do things this way than to wait for a breach. First, she had to build up spin. She circled the small town in her Subaru to the extent there was a town to circle. There was still a town square, at least, a city hall in red brick and a movie theater done up in the same style, where she'd spent some of her spare cash to watch a forgettable action picture starring someone named Chris. (laughs) The other buildings in the square were shuttered and empty, except for the attorney's office, and there the curtains were drawn. Vacant storefronts still bore peeling decals. Kohl's, hardware, a liquor store, a pharmacy with a punning name, all gone now. The town square itself had been built to last 300 years. It would stand while the stick and board houses she drove past rotted to dust. But it would stand three centuries empty. Why build anything to last when the whole place seemed to live on borrowed time? She drove circles around the city hall, drinking in the strangeness of the shuttered place, the eyes of windows where the sun glanced off, hollow like Mona's eyes. Just turn and turn and drink it in, slowly. Suck the spin of the wheel and the suchness of the town down into the pit in your heart, like candy floss gathering around a carnival barker's wand. She listened to the wheels of the Subaru on the seams of the road. And when the spin was well gathered, she popped the glove compartment without taking her eyes off the, glo- off the road, drew a handful of yarrow stalks from within, and tossed them onto the empty passenger seat beside her. The yarrow stalks told her that she'd almost missed the turn. She heeled the car hard right, felt it tip, and slid through a narrow gap in the wide open gulf of the two-lane road to steady herself on the right track. She had worked out how to do all this way back in college and perfected it with Sal and with the others who joined them on the road. Driving by Yarrow stalks and by the transformations in her head, Zelda remembered other cars in other worlds lifetimes ago, 
a black challenger with a red racing stripe, Sal in the passenger seat, the two of them blissed out in talking math as they slipped from streetlight to streetlight and all the darkness of the world rolled over Sal Tempest's skin. They had dared each other out into the deep like girls at summer camp, not realizing just how far either of them would go to please the other until the lake's depths yawned bottomless beneath and they'd both lost the strength to swim for shore. Just a little further. That's right. Thanks very much. Thank you all. You've been a great audience. <laughs> the horse. You really want to hear about the horse? Okay, fair enough. Excellent. Uh, oh gosh, that's a serious fall. Okay. All right. Now this was also. I don't think this was either rider error or horse error. Maybe like sort of over idealistic rider error. Um, I'd been on a horse trek in Mongolia for a couple of days and didn't have a ton of experience riding, so my first couple of days were quite miserable. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I kind of knew where you were supposed to sit and what you were supposed to do. My mom was a horse person when, and like had access to horses. We had access to horses when I was a tiny little guy. But uh, I didn't know how to trot, for example, so by the end of the second day, I felt very much like I was a sack of potatoes that had been <laughs> bounced around. And we ran into, of all things, this um, young woman who's an archaeologist from Oklahoma who like appeared on a ridge on a white horse, like literally <laughs> out of some story. It was like a Western. She had, she had a big old Western hat on. She'd just come back from a dig out in the Gobi Desert. I didn't even know there still were lost cities, but apparently... Yeah. Um, and she was like, she explains to me posting. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'm just going to see if I can do that. That's good. So I start posting up when the, you know, we get to a nice big plane. And I start tr trying to go up on my legs, which is what you're supposed to do when you're, when you're, uh, when the horse is going fast, right? If you've not ridden horses before, if you're just sort of bouncing up and down as the horse walks, you've got to think the horse's spine is there. For one thing, it's not good for the horse. The horse gets annoyed, and so it just kind of wants you off, and that's a problem. Uh, but it's also not good for you, because you're going, like somebody put too many quarters in the magic fingers in the motel bed. Um, so, so we get to this big flat plane, and I'm excited. I go up on the legs. Um, and so posting is you're just standing up a little bit in the saddle, and you're using your legs like shock absorbers almost. So you're ideally never hitting the back of the horse with your butt. So I start doing this, and my horse, who's like a good horse, is like, oh, shit, monkey knows what he's doing all of a sudden. This is great. Let's go. Let's just go, man. We're out of here. So starts trotting really fast. This is good. I got the winds in my face. I'm for once not feeling like a sack of bruised potatoes. And then my horse is like, man, monkeys really understand this thing all of a sudden. Fantastic. Let's just go further. And so we're galloping all of a sudden. And this is great. You know, I'm like in my early 20s. Nothing's wrong in the universe. I'm galloping across the Mongolian steppe with some buddies of mine. I start singing the, the impossible dream from Man of La Mancha. <laughs> good times and yeah yeah and uh so anybody out here know what a marmot is okay good this is this is great i've told this story to rooms where i get a general shake ahead no for anyone who doesn't know it's like a gopher but like this big uh, and they make holes that are like gopher holes but they're about this big um 
and the the step is very flat and they're grass very tall grass so it's quite hard to see when you're all of a sudden going to go from eternal flat step land to a big old gopher hole that's about a foot deep um, so Hongar, this is the horse is really excited that monkey's finally got his shit together and is going as fast as he possibly can go and then goes down on his front knees in a marmot hole whereupon horse is fine i want to the horse comes out of this story very well in case any of you are the people who go to, to, to like does the dog die.com it's okay if you were yeah no i understand what the audience wants man you guys don't give a shit anyway no no obviously no this is just my clone i'm a ghost now i'm a ghost here telling this story um so Anyway, to make a long story short, you remember the uh, you remember the problem that you may have done in like ninth grade physics, where there's the cannon and it shoots the ball, and then you're doing the parabola arc. So I do basically the cannonballs bit of that, and as I get towards the apex of the arc, I remember this sort of momentary thought, like this is literally how people die. <laughs> I'm going to come down on my head at a considerable rate of speed start doing the math it's like this is not good and this is the one time martial arts has ever done anything like serious and life-saving for me in my life i noticed that my arm has started to sort of float out in front of me and gets into the like the tegatana position from aikido the sort of front roll position just without any volition because um, i'm not that smart and it's just sort of positioning there and then i just hit the ground is a wheel like it's the, like I'm the sonic speedball and I don't know like I don't have a clear memory of what happened but all of a sudden I am like a foot off the ground standing straight up <laughs> perfectly unharmed and the horse is looking at me like what the fuck just happened <laughs> and I land <laughs> probably taking more damage to my knees in the process than I'd sustained during the front roll. And the horse, who's still sort of stunned by the improbability of the whole nonsense, like, usually this is good for me getting a few minutes without the monkey. What's happening here? I just reach out and grab his reins. And then we're still friends to this day. Uh, <laughs> so... It's just like... I don't know. I hold this story close to my heart. It's, hey, Matt. Yo. Have you ever been to, like, Ancestry.com or 23andMe? No, I never I have. I just want to know if you're a male line descendant of Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> Does 23andMe have, like, a Genghis Khan window? That's, like, the... Yeah. That would be great, wouldn't it? Like, I understand wanting to understand, like, that you're 16.7% Norwegian or whatever, but really the Genghis Khan checkbox is... The, anyway, uh, so, great. There's that story. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you all. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.